On this week's edition of New York Now, ethics reform heats up in Albany, but will things actually change? We'll tell you more. Then we'll check in with Congressman Lee Zeldin, the presumptive Republican nominee for governor, on his vision for New York and his record in Congress. And later, the expanded child tax credit is out the door. Daryl Camp has details. Plus, an update on the AG's investigation into Governor Cuomo and the news of the week with Kate Lisa from Johnson Newspapers and Ryan Taranelli from the New York Law Journal. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass a law prohibiting it, and we will take them to court challenging it. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. We've talked a lot on the show about ethics and corruption in state government. It's a problem that feels almost systemic in New York, with top lawmakers and public officials accused of misconduct or indicted in what feels like every other year. Lawmakers have tried in the past to fix that, passing stricter ethics laws and stronger oversight. But like many things in Albany, ethics continues to be a problem. And now, lawmakers say they're taking new steps toward what could be real reform. Take a look. New York is notorious for its spotty record on public ethics. More than a century ago, it was home to the infamously corrupt Tammany Hall. And in the past decade, we saw both the Assembly Speaker and the Senate Majority Leader go to prison on charges of public corruption. So our track record isn't great. Senate Ethics Chair Alessandra Biagi. New York State has a D minus when it comes to ethics. Like that is unacceptable. It's really like I'm embarrassed by that. I feel like everybody should be embarrassed by that. That grade is from the Center for Public Integrity, a nonprofit news group. And Democrats are now considering an ethics overhaul in New York. But lawmakers hit a snag in that process this week. They were scheduled to hold a public hearing on ethics reform but had to postpone day of. That was ironically because of a potential conflict with the state open meetings law, which could have made the hearing illegal. Biagi again. Um, it was brought to our attention today um, that if there was a quorum of ethics committee members, then they would have to be in person. Well, not every ethics committee person is here today, and so that's why, again, we want to make sure it's perfect. The hearing is set to be rescheduled sometime soon, and it's expected to be one to watch. Lawmakers have faced pressure this year to bolster the state's ethics laws after new questions emerged on the Joint Commission on Public Ethics, or JCOPE, the state's ethics agency. Reports in recent months have alleged leaks from the commission's private meetings, and JCOPE has largely been silent on claims of sexual harassment made this year against Governor Andrew Cuomo and questions surrounding his pandemic memoir. Cuomo has denied any wrongdoing, but lawmakers still want to get a response from the head of Jacob, who's expected to testify when the hearing's rescheduled. Senator Anthony Palumbo is the highest-ranking Republican on the Ethics Committee. So those are important questions that I had for him, say, well, really, what are, what are we doing? Is it that they just don't want to look at the governor, or they're too busy, or something else? And while the allegations against Cuomo are new, concerns over Jacob are not. Some lawmakers want to scrap Jacob altogether and start over with a new state ethics agency. And that's essentially what good government advocates want as well. They say that when Cuomo and lawmakers created Jacob in 2011, it wasn't set up to be truly independent 
or effective. Blair Horner from the New York Public Interest Research Group is one of those advocates. And the only way the public can support ethics oversight is if it's independent. And this isn't. This is clearly the reflection of the governor and the legislative leaders, not the public's best interest. And we think that has to, that the agency has to go. The Senate did approve legislation this year that would change how members of JCOP are appointed, alter their voting structure, and more. But the Assembly didn't take up the bill. Biagi says she's hoping to partner with the Assembly on that bill and more. The more legislators that are part of this process, the more likely we will actually be to pass laws that make JCOP stronger and also make ethics better. And JCOP isn't just responsible for cases of public corruption. The commission also handles claims of sexual harassment in the legislature. But advocates say that's another area where JCOP has fallen short. Erica Vladimir filed a report with the commission after then-Senator Jeff Klein was alleged to have forcibly kissed her. That was four years ago. And so far, that hasn't been resolved. Now, she's part of the Sexual Harassment Working Group, a group of former legislative staffers who push for stronger anti-harassment laws in New York. We have to recognize that power abuse also means uh, subjecting people to, you know, sacrificing their dignity and making sure that whatever ethics body or ethics system that's going to uh, take the place of JCOB, the Legislative Ethics Commission, the IG, is going to be fully equipped and prepared and professionalized and has the expertise to handle harassment and discrimination cases. And unlike other issues in Albany, this one consistently crosses party lines. While Democrats consider an overhaul of the agency, Republicans are on board for change as well. Here's Palumbo again. This is something that in theory makes sense, but in practical effect, it's been a, it's been a disaster. And unfortunately, we have not seen the, uh, the actual product of JCOP come to fruition. But change is easier said than done. Proposals have been floated to change Jacob in recent years, but few have passed. Biagi says she's hoping that changes when lawmakers return to the state capitol in January. I don't think that New York State is going to become um, like an ethical utopia in the next six months, unfortunately. Like, this is not acceptable. Like, you have to change these things. And in a statement, a spokesperson for Jacob essentially placed the blame on lawmakers, saying, quote, we have proposed legislative amendments to strengthen our enforcement powers, clarify our jurisdiction, and allow us to be more open in disclosing our investigative and enforcement work. The legislature, however, has generally not acted on any of those proposals. So we'll see what happens when lawmakers reschedule that hearing. In the meantime, Governor Cuomo teamed up this week with Eric Adams, who's likely to be the next mayor of New York City after winning the Democratic primary this month. And while the event was about crime, Adams also took a beat to push back on critics who say he's not a progressive. Uh, police reform, ending stop and frisk, testifying in federal court uh, to do so, uh, equality in our classrooms, uh, all of these issues uh, that we look at We've allowed the term being progressive to be hijacked by those who do not have a track record of putting in place real progressive changes. And I am not going to uh, surrender uh, my progressive credentials. But the question is, will this alliance between Cuomo and Adams last? 
And how will all of this be impacted by the multiple investigations into Governor Cuomo, which we have an update on, by the way. Let's discuss with Kate Lisa from Johnson Newspapers and Ryan Tarnelli from the New York Law Journal. Thank you both for being here. Ryan, I want to go to you first. Cuomo and Eric Adams seem to be forming a partnership unlike the one that he doesn't have with current New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. What stood out to you at this event? Well, I think this was, uh, you know, this event is big platform. You know, uh, Mr. Adams, he's coming off of this win. He's going to be the Democratic uh, nominee. This was uh, really them kind of trying to narrow their message on this high profile topic. It did seem that Governor Cuomo was trying to uh, bolster his public image with the rising star of uh, you know, Mr. Adams. So I think that was definitely at pet play, um, Cuomo trying to shore up his political support as he answers, um, as he continues through this really turbulent process in his uh, tenure as governor. Yeah. And I think it's going to be effective, to be honest with you, because we saw him stand with Eric Adams. And then uh, about an hour later, we saw him stand with a, a bunch of lawmakers, including Diana Richardson, Assemblywoman, and Senator Zellner Myrie. And we saw Assembly Richardson be asked by a reporter, how can you stand with the governor after you called on him to resign a few months ago? She called that inappropriate. How did you take that? Well, I think uh, certainly it was an appropriate uh appropriate question, you know, when politicians take public stances and then appear to go in conflict with their public stances, reporters drop us to question them on that. But to the larger point is really uh, this is a tactic that the governor's team is supposedly um, going forward with, which is to bolster support, appearing with lawmakers who have previously called for his resignation. Um, Senate Majority Leader uh, Andrew Stewart-Cousins, for example. Um, so this is a, it seems to be a tactic of bolstering support showing the, the, one of the main criticisms against the governor's administration is that he's lost the confidence um, of being able to work government, basically, right. to be able to run government. So appearing with, with leaders uh, from, from his own party seems to go against that argument. And I think that's what they're aiming towards. Um, also to the and so and also to the point about Eric Adams and whatnot, I often get asked, why is this relationship so important? Why do we care about this? Right. And that is because the relationship between the New York City mayor and the governor impacts New Yorkers on every single level. Certainly, certainly during normal times, but even more so with the pandemic and when things close and when they don't close. So it really impacts New Yorkers and the decisions that these two men make together will impact things. So that's why we focus on this relationship so exactly. much. Exactly. And I'm really interested to see how that impacts what down the line happens with the governor in terms of the AG's report, the AG's investigating sexual harassment against the governor right now. The assembly has its own impeachment probe. So there's just a lot of moving parts here. And we found out this week that the governor is going to be questioned this weekend on his role in that sexual harassment probe. In other words, he's going to be asked about the facts that these various women have alleged against him. Kate, what are we expecting out of this? Do we know, I guess, what we're going to get out of this? Um, no, I guess we don't. Um, that's kind of been the, the thing here is that for months we've been waiting to see um, all these different investigations that have been coming forward at all different levels of government against the governor. Uh, there's been no timeline because, you know, investigators are very tight-lipped about what the, the investigation entails and and how long it will take. So um, 
some reports have, have said that maybe this indicates that the AG is getting close to the end of her investigation, but who's to say? I mean, I don't know if um, she will put things that she's investigating about the governor together, but I think actually going back to the, um, th that's why the question was so important to the assembly member yesterday, because, um, you know, Yes, the, the press conferences were about gun violence and the ongoing issue there, which is so important, but um, it, all of these things are important to New Yorkers, and that's why open press conferences are important so that, and mm -hmm. that was the second of the day, so, you know, which was rare. We, don't, we haven't gotten that kind of chance for, for press to be able to ask the governor questions in person once, you know, a, in a day, let alone twice. So, um, and in Albany for the past six months. Yeah, at least, right? Yeah. So, um, and so I think it's not, it wasn't an inappropriate question, but especially, um, I think that was a chance for even a lawmaker to be able to say, we need to stand together right now and, and talk about this important topic. And we need to see what the investigation, how it unfolds, and obviously in the, the job is being done, and we'll see what happens this weekend. Exactly. Ryan, and, go ahead. And, and I think, too, it should be noted that the expectations for the AG's report are very high. Um, yes. This is an investigation where accusers, their attorneys, uh, you know, critics of Cuomo have said, we believe in the process and we believe in the backgrounds of these two outside attorneys who are doing the investigation. So this is really the investigation that a lot of people are putting a lot of effort into, as opposed to the impeachment investigation from this. Exactly. Side. And I'm really interested to see what happens with the AG's report, if it's released before the impeachment's investigation report, and whether that drives the assembly to act quicker than they are currently, assuming the AG's report comes out first. But we do have to leave it there. Ryan Taranelli from the New York Law Journal, Kate Lisa from Johnson Newspapers, thank you both so much. Thank you. So the race for governor continues here in New York, and we don't really know what that's going to look like next year. Governor Cuomo is planning to run again as of now, but that could change. And Republicans say they've got a strategy to win, regardless of the Democratic nominee. That includes Congressman Lee Zeldin, who was picked as the presumptive Republican nominee for governor by county chairs this month. He stopped by earlier this week to catch up on his campaign, his record in Congress, and more. Congressman Lee Zeldin, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thank you. So you've been crisscrossing the state since you announced your candidacy. It's been a few months. You were the first person to announce this year. Tell me what you're hearing from voters, because obviously you're talking to a lot of people while you're out there. What are their concerns? What are they telling you? New Yorkers are talking about their breaking point. They're talking about how they are considering leaving our state. They feel like they don't have a voice and representation in our state capitol. It's coming from all over New York. It's coming from New Yorkers of all walks of life. They're talking about the economy and cost of living, public safety and the need to support law enforcement more. They're talking about their kids' education, the way that restrictions came from the state capitol and the governor's office going through the pandemic. Uh, they're talking about the governor himself and how they feel like he's been there too long and it's time for him to go. They are very much personalizing uh, this election and the stakes emotionally, passionately, uh, with hunger. And I noticed very early on it was last standish in a way mm. where they really feel like they have to do their part understanding fully the stakes if they're complacent. Yeah, this is a really interesting election because Governor Cuomo would be going to a fourth term that would be almost unprecedented in the state. 
And if you were to become the governor, you would have to get votes from people across the aisle because we have Democrats outnumbering Republicans registered. So what's your plan to get those moderates, independents, and Democrats, If you, assuming you are the Republican nominee? Well, first off, I never paint all of one party with one broad brush. So understanding that where you are in the state, uh, some Democrats feel like their parties left them. Some Democrats are proud to be Democrats, but they feel like Andrew Cuomo has been there too long and it's time for him to go. I support term limits. I would call on the state legislature to term limit me to two terms, and even if they don't term limit me, I still wouldn't run for a third term. It's a bad idea. This governor's in his third term showing us why. Uh, and I believe that there are Democrats, some are more liberal, others consider themselves to be moderate, some are considering themselves to be conservative. They have different priority issues. So you, you might talk to one Democrat in New York City who uh, might be a strong supporter of the defund the police movement and their neighbor mm -hmm. is a Democrat, an active Democrat, proud Democrat voter, but they believe that we should be reversing cashless bail, keeping qualified immunity and supporting law enforcement more. Education, there are a lot of Democrats who feel strongly that our kids, when they go back to school, should not be required to get the vaccine. They believe that they shouldn't be required to be masked up. Uh, there is strong support for school choice. I support tax credits for school choice. Uh, I believe that we shouldn't be getting rid of advanced academics in the name of equity. Hmm. So when you talk to a Democrat voter, uh, you have to engage them on the issues that matter most to them and have a quality, substantive, meaningful one-on-one -on -one conversation. You have to work hard, you could take nothing for granted, uh, and you have to be accessible. And that's why I've already been to all ca the counties in New York State. I'm traveling around again, I'm on the road right now. We'll be back on the road uh, as we get into next weekend, and we're, we're not taking anything for granted. You have to work hard to earn support, and you can't just assume it. Right, you have been everywhere. You've just been going across the state. And as you make that journey across the state, top Democrats, every time that they mention you, they immediately go to your alliance with former President Donald Trump, your conservative voting record in Congress, and of course, your vote against certifying the election results in January. And I want to give you a chance to explain that. Why was that the right move to do at the time? Yeah, well, first off, uh, every single time there's been a Republican presidential win over the course of the last few decades, there's been objections filed by House Democrats. So mm. it's, this isn't some new thing that took place. Um, when I talk to voters and ask them, what are the issues that matter most to you? They're talking to me about wanting to, they, they want a governor who's gonna fight for their wallets, for their safety, for their freedoms. Uh, they are talking about leaving New York State. Uh, they wanna know what we can possibly do about it on issues that matter most. You talk to a small business owner in the state, and a, a local job creator asked them uh, what they want to talk, what do you want us to be talking about? Uh, they're gonna talk about the inability to get workforce to come in. I mean, I, I was, I say all across the entire state help wanted signs, not because there isn't an available a worker in their community, but that available worker is saying, hey, listen, I'm actually getting paid more not to take that job. Uh, and that's having real impacts. Um, now, I personally believe, as it relates to elections, that we should always be engaging with each other about election integrity. Uh, we should find ways to make it easier to vote, to make it harder to cheat. Uh, in New York State, we have actually a lot of different uh, voter laws that are on the books that you would say are actually stricter 
than what you might find in other states. We have signature verification here. You can have poll watchers when you vote. You can closely observe the opening of ballots. You can submit an objection, and if you want to stick to that objection, that ballot's not going to get counted until it gets in front of a judge. Uh, we should, regardless of outcome, whether your candidate comes in first or second, always be having a conversation with each other about how can we make this process better. Uh, I have long been somebody who believes greatly in election integrity, uh, and I think that you'll actually have more trust in the process by welcoming that conversation, uh, regardless of whether your candidate comes in first or second. So is that vote a stance of you saying that you want to improve election integrity nationwide, or was it you saying that you didn't trust the election results? Well, most specifically, the issue that I had with regards to what happened in 2020 was because we had a pandemic, and in the name of the pandemic, you had non-state legislative actors making change to, changes to how their elections were administered. Right. So if you were the um, uh, state uh, secretary of state of Pennsylvania entering into a friendly lawsuit settlement with the League of Women Voters, without going and asking the state legislature for approval, they changed the way that the election was administered. In Wisconsin, you had a county elections official who is telling the voters in their county how to get around the voter ID law and the signature verification law in that particular county. For me, and it's constant, this is in the United States Constitution, uh, state legislatures set how these elections should be administered. And in the name of the pandemic, there were changes made without seeking that approval. Now going forward, there are going to be times in the future where maybe you get hit with a hurricane, uh, some other type of a natural disaster. Maybe it's another pandemic just before an election. And now based, based on whether it's a Republican in power or a Democrat in power, that you have some governor or some secretary of state or some elections commissioner unilaterally making huge consequential changes, I believe that that constitutional provision was written purposefully. It's something that should be followed and respected, and that was something that I had, that was my biggest issue that I was talking about. So I think that issue probably isn't gonna go away. Another issue that's not going away immediately, at least, is crime in New York. I think that we covered cost of living already. So what's your plan to reduce crime? That's like the big issue right now, especially in New York City, cities like Rochester, Albany, Buffalo. How do we get that crime rate down? Okay, we, we should reverse cashless bail we should keep qualified immunity. We should be proudly supporting law enforcement. I mean, they selflessly, courageously do an important job. If there's a bad actor who does something wrong, the system should crack down on that person who did the wrong thing. There should be accountability. And I was raised in a law enforcement household, and I have found that law enforcement wants to hold their own accountable when that person does the wrong thing. Now, I do believe that there should be uh, a bill of rights and for law enforcement enacted at the state level that we should recognize their inherent right of self-defense. I don't believe that we should be changing the use of force laws. They, they want to say that necessity isn't enough of a standard. They want to change that standard. I don't agree with that. Uh, I believe they should have all the resources and tools they need to do their jobs as effectively as possible. I don't believe that they should be unfairly targeted by investigations. I believe that their training should be as effective as it can be. I believe that we should be building trust between law enforcement and local community leaders. There's a huge positive direct benefit to public safety when you lean into that to work on building trust. Uh, public safety is a big issue for many New Yorkers. For many New Yorkers I'm hearing from, they tell me that it's their number one issue. Mm. Yeah, I think that's true across the state. And, you know, I hope, honestly, that it's not an issue next year. I hope our crime rates do go down. But we'll have to see, and we do have to leave it there. 
Congressman Lee Zeldin, the presumptive Republican nominee for governor. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. And as of now, as we've told you, Zeldin is facing a primary heading into next year, but that could change in the meantime as well. But coming back to now, we saw the first payments of the expanded child tax credit go out the door this week. Daryl Camp is here with more. Daryl. That's right, Dan. In response to the financial impacts of the coronavirus pandemic, federal lawmakers passed the American Rescue Plan earlier this year. A part of that plan was an enhancement of the child tax credit, which went into effect this week. That allows households with children to receive monthly payments through December based on their income and the number of children in the house. The cap for those payments is a total of $3,600 for children under 6 and $3,000 for children 6 to 17 years old. Half of the money will be paid in monthly installments through December, with the other half coming when 2021 taxes are filed. Congressman Paul Tonko held a press conference this week to raise awareness of the fully refundable credit. And so, you know, the corresponding benefits that we get with uh, better performance in school, better outcomes for children, final career paths that are strengthened, all of this is uh, a strong series of dynamics that speak positively to doing this bill and a permanent, in this program and, and making it permanent. Tonko said opposition to the enhanced credit fell roughly along party lines, but he is hoping to convince opponents of the long-term benefits. We will see what happens with that in Congress, but thank you so much, Daryl, for that report. And thank you so much for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.